electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Today on The Exchange, we're talking banks, we're talking bonds, and we're talking bottoms. First, the banks, the big driver for earnings season so far, holding up better than expected. The big names getting the most attention. We're going to drill down on some of the smaller ones that could be good bets for you right now. Then, bonds. Yields lower today. They hit decade highs last week. Are we past the yield peak? The bond king of Texas says yes. He'll join us live right here in studio with how far and how fast he sees yields maybe reversing. And the bottom, could it really finally kind of sort of be in for stocks? Well, take out bonds. And Ari Wald says we are seeing all the textbook signs of a short-term or longer technical bottom. He is here with why and what he is buying now. We're going to get to all that. But let us begin with today's markets and Dom Chu and more green on the screen. Oh, Dom. Very much so. And tilting towards session highs right now. To give you an idea of the trading range, Brian, to your point, at the highs of the session, first of all, we're up 93 points right now. At the highs of the session, call it up roughly 106 points and then up 55s at the lows. So even at the lows of the session, still very much to the upside here. But we have tilted towards the higher end of things. 36.76 is the last rate for the S&P, up 2.5%. The Dow is the laggard right now, only up 541 points, or about 1 and 3 quarters percent, to 30,177. The Nasdaq Composite, 10,656, up a whopping 335 points, 3 and a quarter percent gains there. So technology really driving a lot of the action there. Believe it or not, the financials are a big part of the story, given those bank earnings, but they are nowhere near what we're seeing in terms of technology and consumer discretionary in terms of moves higher. But Bank of America and BNY Mellon, both reporting earnings earlier this morning, both up solidly, just around 5 to 5.5%. Bank of America driven in large part by a bottom line and top line beat, thanks in large part to better results at its bond trading unit, also this higher interest rate environment, generally speaking. J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup as a result, all taking a sympathy bit higher. And Goldman Sachs, the big standout here for tomorrow because it reports its results. It's up 2% right now. And then the stock move of the day right now, not an S&P 500 company, but an impressive one nonetheless. It's Roblox, the online virtual reality video game slash augmented reality creation platform, if you will, tech company, is up about 20% right now after it reported user metrics that came in much better than expected, a jump of 23% during the month of September over the same time last year. Hours booked by customers and users also up about 16%. That, as a result, has powered that stock, which has lost about half its value, 44% of its value over the last year, to a big upside move. But we're putting the one-year chart, Brian, in context for you here at 43 bucks a share. It's still significantly below where it was a year ago. And check this out. It's been fairly range-bound for the better part of the last couple of months. So watch those Roblox shares. I'll send things back over to you, Brian. Almost meta-esque. It is meta-esque. Meta-esque. Dom meta Chu. Right now. Thank yes. you very much. All right, our first guest today expects trading to remain choppy in the near term, but he's a longer-term investor. And he says the market has arrived at a point where there is some real value. And believe it or not, some of that value may actually be in Europe right now. Joining us with his picks is Jason Brady, president and CEO of Thornburg Investment Management. I saw 
value and Europe in the same sentence that I thought, well, it's too early to be drinking. You're on like mountain time. It's like 930 or whatever in the morning out there. How are you finding value in Europe given all they're dealing with and all the variables that we just don't know? Thanks, Brian. I think uh, I'm still trying to parse whether Meta-esque is a compliment in this environment. It's not. Um, uh, no. With, Zero. With valuations where they are, maybe it's starting to be. And that's really the story here. Um, we look at names like SAP, uh, a global software provider, Total Energies, uh, one of our largest positions in the investment income builder here at Thornburg, which is... Uh, at the Total is a global energy company. It's trading under 10 times with a mid-single digits dividend yield. Um, this is really a, a story where there are global companies out there and they happen to be domiciled in Europe. They're really being tarred with the same brush as some of the more sort of local cyclical companies. And uh, we think that's an opportunity. Yeah, they're facing a potential worker strike in France right now. By the way, that's the last mm-hmm. thing that country or that continent needs. But they pick, they're, they're pushing big time into renewables as well. And to your point, Jason, and for our audience out there, particularly maybe some of the newer investors, when things look the worst, and I can't imagine they look much worse in, in many parts of Europe, that's often the best time to buy long-term, is it not? Of course. And what I would say to investors out there is I, I'm not in the business of calling the bottom. I've, I've bought the bottom, but never only the bottom. I just think we are now pricing in a global recession, which I expect. Uh, the next 12 months as that re- it gets realized will be challenging. Uh, but CPI is starting to roll over when you look outside of shelter components, which is going to take a long time to work through. And we have, again, valuations, not high-flying tech, not private markets where I think there's been a lot of froth. But we have we have have some really great companies out there under 10 times with mid-single digits dividends. I, it's just an interesting time and, and I think a, a good time for investors. Like an SAP, obviously, they're German, they're huge here. We know that, Bill McDermott, they're big, but they're a German-based company. Mm-hmm. And that's trading at a significant discount, not as much uh, as, as below 10 times, but about 17 times. That's pretty interesting. Lots of recurring revenue. And I'm just not going to put a black mark against SAP because it's not domiciled in the U.S. Um, look, you want to compare Salesforce and SAP. They're obviously slightly different businesses, uh, but the valuations uh, contemplate that and more. And so, again, there's lots of value out there if you're willing to look. And it's really because of all the volatility that we've seen due to the huge rise in yields. The U.S. markets, I'm not going to ask you to call the bottom. We've got a technician, Ari Wald, coming up who can do that. You're a longer-term investor. When you look out six months, 12 months, we know about inflation. We know about central banks. That will ease out. What's going to be the next big thing we have to focus on? I think what you're seeing now is really a strong consumer. Paint, that picture is being painted by financials. So you look at JP Morgan, obviously up whatever, 12, 13 percent in the last few days. What they reported was a little bit weaker uh, earnings, but really the consumer is strong. Uh, and uh, this is year on year. The consumer is strong. And that the idea that we're going to have a system, systemic challenge coming from the financial st- system, I don't see it. I see a liquidity challenge. Again, I see private markets being a real locus of challenge uh, for, for public markets as well. Uh, but that's choppy markets. That's not crash markets. Because ultimately, the Fed will not be the only game in town, will it? I mean, it's going, they're going to stop raising at some point, probably late this year, early next year. But, but does it matter what mo- if it's December, January, February? They're rolling off those rate hikes. 
Brian, I, I grew up in fixing up markets, and uh, I can tell you I've talked about the Fed till I'm blue in the face. I'm kind of tired of it. I yeah, think everybody too. else Join, is too. Get, get in line, man. <laughs> yeah, right? It is a big deal, and I can't, you can't underestimate the importance of the last even seven, eight months. We went from 0% rates, and, and as you say, by the beginning of next year, something like 5%. That is an enormous change. It's, it's virtually unprecedented. Certainly in modern markets, you'd have to go back more than four decades. But that's, that, the market's forward-looking, right? And, and that's really what we've seen in the PE compression is contemplating that rise in rates. And, and frankly, cash, you know, four-plus percent right now looks pretty good to a lot of folks. Stocks got cheaper as a result. The question now is what will earnings do? I think they'll decline, just not crash. Yeah, listen, back in the old days, I hosted a show called Street Signs, and we had a Fed jar. If you talked about the Fed, you had to put a dollar in there. We'd have a million dollars a month at this point, at this rate. So I'm right there with you. Jason, thank you. Have a good day. Jason Brady of Thornburg. All right, so now let's talk about the key driver for earnings season so far and so far, and it's early. It has been the banks because the numbers have actually held up pretty well, many better than expected. But while so much attention is paid to the biggest banks, the Goldman's and the Morgan's of the world. Your next guest has made his investors a lot of money by finding the smaller hidden gems, the regional and mid-sized banks. Anton Schutz of Menden Capital Advisors joining us now. Anton, good to see. Are you tired of talking about the Fed? <laughs> yeah, I'm tired of talking about it, thinking about it, and you know, being victimized by it because everybody thinks Armageddon is coming. And obviously, I'd love to see the Fed slow their roll. Um, because that lag effect, we've all, we're all talking about it. Let's let the lag effect take effect here. Uh, obviously, it's been so far pretty good for bank earnings. What do you mean the lag effect? And victim, well, victimized by the Fed. Go, go into those statements there, Anton. Absolutely. Um, so first of all, you know, financials have performed pretty well of late, but have been hurt a lot this year because everybody's going, oh, my gosh, here comes the recession. Let's extrapolate to 2007 and eight. The banks are part of the solution, not part of the problem. A lot of lending, bad lending is taking place outside the banking system. They have plenty of capital. Uh, their process has been tight. Uh, as you can see from the earnings, no loan problems at all. And obviously, they've done a nice job, you know, capturing some of the rise in, in rates here. So financials are cheap. Um, the large ones look cheap versus the S&P. They may be 11 times earnings. The smaller guys are seven, eight, nine times earnings. And, and so there's really a, an opportunity here for a catch-up in a big way just to the rest of the market. And this goes all the way back to when I was running money on this fund in 2000. Um, you know, the, the very large high P.E. stocks came under assault in 2000. And the low P.E. dividend-paying financials performed really, really well for a number of years. And I think we're sort of setting up for that again. Uh, I don't expect Armageddon. Obviously, the Fed, you know, raises rates to 10%. Uh, all pets off. Nobody's forecasting that. But, you know, clearly, you've got to let some of these rate hikes, the lag, it's got to take effect. You've got to let some time pass. So these 75 basis point hikes in perpetuity have got to come into a, a halt. Well, they? Advocate of, uh, they should. Uh, I think you're going to start seeing in different numbers. I mean, one of the big lag effects, uh, you know, we saw some Terrible numbers on housing last week, but you talk to anybody, and, and housing is calming down a great deal. Rents should be calming down a great deal. And I think that effect, those numbers were, were awful looking last week, but there's a real lag to that, and I think they'll start showing up. The Fed can't control what energy prices are going to do. I mean, what OPEC is doing is what OPEC is doing. It's unfortunate, 
Uh, we do have a solution here in this country. Uh, I think the people in Texas would love to talk about that solution, but there's there's no doubt about it that you know self-sufficiency would be very helpful to us. That's not happening. But the Fed raising rates is not going to deal with the price of oil. No, we, we, we were talking about getting rid of oil three years ago. Now we're desperate for more oil, but that's, that's an energy segment. One thing I love about mm-hmm. you, Anton, is that you get on a plane, you travel the country, you talk to management. I mean, when's the last time you were in Billings, Montana with first interstate <laughs> bank system? You know, I haven't been there in a long time, but I've known the CEO for a long time. He's, he's run a number of other banks and been involved as a CFO at a number of other big banks. And you know what's nice about that bank is they completed a large merger. They've got a large dividend. Earnings estimates are too low. And they actually have a chance to be added to an important S&P index. So you might get that as well. So I've got the recipe for everything. You've got a very conservative management team there. So, you know, love that upside. I love self-help stories. And this is a self-help story. That merger is going to work out very well for this company. And that first interstate name was a brilliant acquisition years ago. There was a, a company by the same name that Wells Fargo bought that had a really great cachet on the West Coast. So I expect them to keep expanding. And I love the earnings trajectory of this company. Yeah, when I saw the name, I, I, I actually, because growing up in California, I kind of thought about that, kind of get that, that brand equity as well. This one is new to me, Lakeland Bank Corp. And I thought, okay, Lakeland, they're probably in Florida. They're in Oak Ridge, New Jersey, not Tennessee. I didn't even know there was an Oak Ridge, New Jersey. Why do you like Lake LBAI? <laughs> well, um, the better liquidity may well be in, in PFS, which is the company buying them. That's Provident Financial Services. Um, the CEOs came from a company uh, called Bank North years ago. It was a company we owned. And they've done a very successful job of building uh, both PFS and Lakeland up. Um, I think cost assumptions are conservative. Again, a very nice large dividend, over 4%. A, a very large index ad when this deal closes, um, and conservative underwriting. So again, sort of the same theme I mentioned earlier. The banks have done a really good job of underwriting. Um, they've learned a lot of lessons. You know, obviously, 2007 and 8, they started again being very conservative in 2020. So you know, this company has a lot of earnings growth coming mm-hmm. into the future. Has index ads, has a nice dividend, and very strong management, and trades at a very low multiple. You know, look at the charts on on this one. It's, it got killed on the on the transaction, and you know I think there's a lot of upside here uh, to the earnings power of this. Can company. you still own them, or do you have to buy PFS Provident? Um, well, you can you can own both. I, my fund owns both companies, and depends on where the battle liquidity is. But clearly, uh, you know you're going to end up with Provident Financial Services when this merger closes. And I, again, you know, really really like the upside yep. here from an earnings perspective. And Todd Schutz, Menden Capital Advisors, always pointing out some fun new name. Billings, Montana to Oak Ridge, New, not Old Bridge, Oak Ridge, New Jersey. Anton, thank you. Appreciate it. Always a pleasure. All right, be well. By the way, speaking of banks and big ones, Bank of America's Chairman and CEO Brian Moynihan will be coming up in an interview at the top of Power Lunch. That's in like 45 minutes. So if you like the big banks, that's an interview you're going to want to check out. All right, speaking of international, there is huge news coming out of China this week. Chinese President Xi Jinping is outlining his policies for the next five years, and they may have some very big implications for investors all around the world, including in the United States. Yunishun is in Beijing with the details. Yunus, we could probably do two hours on this topic. What would be the key takeaways so far for the CNBC audience? 
Well, President Xi was signaling to investors that they should assume that making China great again is Beijing's central task. Uh, he spoke for uh, two hours in a speech at the opening a ceremony for a leadership conference on Sunday. And uh, President Xi had made it quite clear that China's national rejuvenation would be underpinned by a Chinese-style modernization and that that modernization would continue to prioritize national security. And so to President Xi, that means self-reliance, tech supremacy, and military power that is, quote, normalized. Now, he also suggested that growth would take a back seat and that the main principles would be common prosperity, so that is narrowing the wealth gap by, and as well as he said, introducing a standardizing mechanism of wealth accumulation, uh, high quality development, which many believe is going to include a whole lot of green investment, and then a continuation of zero COVID. He fiercely defended this policy, saying that it's provided uh, many major positive results and also uh, protected people's lives as well as the economy. Now, we were supposed to get a snapshot of where the economy stands on Tuesday, but Q3 GDP numbers and September economic data has uh, suddenly disappeared from the government schedule. Um, this comes after oh. a September trade data was also delayed last Friday. Yeah, so there's... Um, uh, not a whole lot of official word as to why this is, but a whole lot of speculation that it could have something to do with the um, Congress going on and that people just don't want to embarrass President Xi or detract in any way from the narrative of a strong China. That would not be a good long-term uh, political survival strategy going against uh, President Xi. Do they really believe, I mean, you're in a, it's two and a half years later, Eunice, Western vaccines not available there. Uh, you're still in a mask. Do people still nope. believe, it sounds like they still believe yeah. that COVID zero somehow makes sense. I, I, I'm not sure a lot of doctors here would agree with that, but I guess you're not allowed to disagree. No, um, not officially, not publicly. Uh, the Chinese government really doesn't like that, especially when it comes to zero COVID. Um, also because zero COVID is so closely linked with President Xi Jinping. So. The state media in the past several days has been arguing that this is um, a policy that's based in science, that this is um, something that's sustainable, that um, it is actually um, a policy that, uh, that can be done and should be done. And in fact, have, have the, the, the People's Daily had argued that other countries haven't been able to do it, uh, not because they didn't want to, but because they were unable to. So, um, so it seems quite clear that for a while, we're going to see zero COVID. Um, the optimists say that it might be lasting until another big political conference that's going to happen in March, um, and that maybe there could be some measures that are tweaked and ease up, uh, at least on, um, say, international travel. But um, a lot of people are also quite pessimistic. Um, and, and, and more and more people have been telling me that it really has to do with the personality of President Xi, and that it's gotten to a point where if you think that you're infallible, it's not something that you, you can't really reverse a decision yeah, that we, you keep painting as something that is so important and something that you've, a decision you've already made. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a fair point. It's hard to, uh, it's hard to maybe flip it and say we could have done things differently, but we have that debate here in the West as well. Eunice, you could take that, take that to the bank. Eunice Yoon in China, big week. <laughs> for China. Eunice, thank you very much.
See, I knew she was smiling. Even under the mask, I could tell she was smiling. All right, we are just getting started on this very busy Monday. And coming up, the multi-decade bull run in bonds is over. But could that actually be good news? The Texas Bond King, Gilbert Garcia, is here. He'll break it all down. Plus, the Thursday's 1,500-point swing on the Dow finally marked the bottom of the market. We will check the charts next. The exchange rolls on with the Dow up 500 right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, let's talk about bonds, because even if you think bonds are boring, your next guest is going to say they're not. Bond yields have been driving the stock market, and it's been a wild ride. The 10-year yield was at just half a percent, 0.5 percent, two and a half years ago. It's now up 550 percent since then. This is bond prices fall and random but interesting. This is one of the worst ever years for both stocks and bonds at the same time, but with pain May come some opportunity. Joining us now is Gilbert Garcia. is Garcia Hamilton Associates president. And we'll call him the unofficial bond king of Texas in from Houston, a town I, I got to get back to sooner than later. Gilbert, good to have you on. Oh, thank you for having me. We're ready to have you in Houston. And of course, my wife always says, bond king, don't forget to take out the trash. That's so it. she puts me in my place. Yeah, I did the same thing, actually, this morning. It's funny. Um, you, I, I love having you on. You, I've never met anybody with so much passion for bonds. I don't yeah. know if I'm up for this interview. No, let's I don't do know it. if I have the energy for this. No, we're ready. And the thing about bonds are... They are just beautiful instruments, and people don't really understand. Not they were boring and slow and old. They're not, and the creativity of them, whether you can have in the in the uh, balance sheet structure, whether something's senior subordinated, whether you have something in a securitized world, whether it's mortgage-backed securities, you can redirect the cash flows to really splice and dice the securities to create whatever. Uh, instrument that fits the buying community. They're really phenomenal instruments. And it is true that bonds have had a terrible year this year. But keep in mind that we had unusual outsized positive years in 2020 and 2019. So in many ways, we're just kind of coming back. Fair enough. Historical context, by the way, is key. I get that market's down this year, but it's still well up from where it was four years ago, et cetera, et cetera. You were just saying um, that certain types of mortgages, agencies, yes. the Fannies, the Freddies of the world, that they're at the worst price ever? Yes. Let's talk like about worse that. than 09? Yes. 
Yes. And that's when Fannie went into receivership, but it's been a disaster. Well, but here's the thing, because what's going to be driving the mortgage prices really isn't the credit risk, because the credit is Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, the indirect obligations of the government. What's really driving them are interest rates. And you've had such a huge move in the commitment rate. And what's happening to mortgages is the market is primarily 85 percent of the mortgage index are 30 year mortgages. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, we've been in very low rates. And so what's happened now is those two, two and a halves, they're now at $85, $86 price. And the duration or the interest rate risk has extended significantly. And so usually now. Usually they're at 100, right? That's I mean, correct. Usually at par. That's so correct. That's for the basis. So now you're at 85. So here's the thing. Even to a zero prepayment, meaning the worst case possible for mortgage-backed securities, you're still yielding above treasuries. So imagine the positive convexity impact. If you just get prepayments up just a little bit, it's all gravy to a mortgage-backed securities holder. And that's why they're probably uh, the best investment out there really? in the fixed income market. I, and I love the positive convexity. We had a positive yeah. yield, uh, positive carry yeah. reference the other day. Now we have a positive convexity. Yeah, because we're getting, we're getting deep into the bond that, That's here, exactly Gilbert. right. Because remember, mortgages have negative convexity. What does that mean again? As you get above par with prepayments, they can't go up much more in price because you're getting too many prepayments back. Remember, a prepayment gives you money back at par. Well, here, a prepayment, whether it's anything, a relocation, death, divorce, anything, is a good thing, is a good thing because you're at $85 price. And now at a zero, meaning no prepayments, you're still yielding above treasury. Why are we so, I don't want to use the term messed up in the bond market, but I'm going to use the term messed up. Why yeah. not? Prices are all whacked out. I well, mean, it's the, weird the, because rates moved ahead of the bond market well, and everyone's trying to catch up. The most... Uh, the main reason why things are whacked out, and I like that phrase whacked out, is the government owns too many bonds. If you look at treasuries, they own roughly a third of the treasury market, they own roughly a third of the tips market, and they own roughly 30% of the mortgage securitized market. So that's what's creating these dislocations. The best thing the Fed can do is get out of the way of the markets and let the markets adjust but, to where they well, need the to be. First off, the federal government is the biggest company in the world. That's, that's what right. I like to call them. They, they own everything. They're in the private sector yep. now. I mean... Whatever. Um, but aren't they selling all that stuff? Well, or a they lot are, of it? but it's very slow. Yeah. And remember, they have caps. And when you really do the mathematics, they're really not going to be selling any mortgages because prepayments are so slow, they're not hitting the cap. So at the end of the day, they're going to need to sell mortgage-backed securities somewhere in the future. But the balance sheet is just way too high at almost $9 trillion. So quickly, how do we make money in the bond market right now? Right now? Besides invest with you. Well, <laughs> I appreciate that. No, the most important thing is inflation has peaked or is peaking. All you got to do is look at the components. They're all rolling over, yep. which means this is a good time. Rates have probably peaked to go into the bond market. And as it relates to the bond market, I would go as long duration as you can, meaning somewhere out in that 10-year area. Mm -hmm. Mortgage-backed securities are very, very attractive. I don't think we've seen the worst of credit yet because we do expect a recession somewhere in the early part of next year. Maybe not, maybe not in Houston, but maybe in a lot of other places. Well, that, that, well, that's right. well here's we'll the see, real driver. See what happens with the price of oil and gas. That's right. right. I but, mean, that for you guys. But the real driver. It goes dry, through your veins. That's, it does. You can see it right now. I, I know. I've been there a few times. But with the most important thing is money supply yeah. is now growing at almost negative, or depending upon the rate of frequency, or certainly close to zero. And that's never been good for the economy. We're going to see what happens. A lot of economic reads. Loved having you on set, by the way. We're going to get together in Houston. I'm ready. I, I'm, I need another trip back there. Gilbert, it's a real pleasure to have you on. Thank you for having me. Please have me again. Absolutely. Love it. All right, now I'm all worked up. I want to go home and read about bonds. Let's do it. All right, on deck. Call 
Call it the world's fastest financial U-turn. What the UK just did that is helping stocks here. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map. All 30 Dow stocks at the green. JP Morgan Chase, your biggest gainer. Dow's up more than 500. We're back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. We are not on our highs of the session, but we're not far off. The Dow is up 605 points. High was 677. Nobody cares about the Dow. NASDAQ is worth, look at that, 3.34% gain. NASDAQ kind of carrying that momentum over, maybe on from Friday as well. S&P up about two and three quarters of 1%. Let's take a look at some of the mega cap names, some of the most widely held stocks out there, all higher by at least 2%. Tesla, the big outperformer, Tesla, by the way, having its best single day since all the way back in June. Tesla's up 7%. Here's some of the other movers at this hour. You got Arkea Energy. It is being bought by BP. It's a renewable natural gas company. BP is going to pay 26 bucks a share or about $3.3 billion in cash. On the flip side, shares of Kano Health are plunging. I don't know a report that CVS has walked away from a deal. Remember, there was some talks about them buying Kano. Well, the report now is they're walking away. Kano, oh, down 40% right now. Obviously, it's on pace for its worst day. On, I mean, if that's not the worst day on record, I don't know what would be. By the way, CVS shares are up about a percent on the news. So if you bought Kano on hopes of the deal, I'm sorry. It may still happen, but the reports are CVS walking away. Stock's getting hit. All right, let's step outside of the stock market for a second. Get a check on a news update with Tyler Matheson. Brian, thank you very much. And here is your CNBC News update at this hour. The Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky will be publishing a collection of wartime speeches this December in a book titled A Message from Ukraine. Proceeds will go to Zelensky's United 24 initiative to coordinate charitable donations to Ukraine. Significant radioactive contamination is being found on an elementary school in suburban St. Louis. Jana Elementary sits in the floodplain of Coldwater Creek, which was contaminated by nuclear waste from weapons production during World War II. A new report by Boston Chemical Data Corp confirms fears previously raised by the Army Corps of Engineers. Tonight on the news with Shepard Smith, reactions from the community and the school board's plan to improve conditions for students. And the rapper, formerly known as Kanye West, is offering to buy the conservative social media platform Parler. This comes after Ye, as he now goes by himself, uh, was both uh, was locked out of both Twitter and Instagram for anti-Semitic posts, among other things. Parliament Technology says the acquisition should be completed in the fourth quarter, but price details are not being disclosed. Brian, back to you. Billionaires buying social media seems to be yes. a thing. Tyler, thank you. Yay. Yay. All right, still ahead. Your next guest says the market is flashing some textbook bottoming signs with one caveat. 
What's next? Uh, welcome back. One big question continues to befuddle many investors. Have stocks bottomed? It's a good question. And at least according to one technician, the answer may be yes. Ari Wald of Oppenheimer says last Thursday's record reversal was the signal. Major averages each dropped about 2% or more on that red-hot CPI data before ripping higher and finishing the day with more than 2% gains. It was the biggest point swing for the Dow since March of 2020, more than 1,500 points and the biggest percent swing for the S&P since 2011, according to Bespoke. Wald says he believes that signaled a, quote, textbook bottom, although stubbornly high bond yields could still create issues in the near term. I don't know why I'm quoting him. He's right here. We can just put him on TV and radio. Eric Wald, I'm like reading quotes from you back to you. Uh, thanks for coming on. How do we know this all just an, some just giant short covering head fake in a downtrend? Always possible. You got to look at the weight of the evidence. You know, again, the key reversal day, that's when you have uh, big opening losses that get reversed into the close. That is an indication of downside exhaustion. And it's not just that reversal alone, but what's adding to it is its efficacy are four things. You know, one, where it occurred. It occurred at a very important level, 3,500 on the S&P 500. That's the 50% retracement of the prior bull market which is where the majority of bear cycles through history have been limited to. Uh, point two, it occurred with very deeply oversold market cycle indicators, breadth and sentiment levels on par with what we saw in even March of 2009, levels that have been followed by above average returns. Point three, occurred with indications of downside uh, selling intensity that was abating versus where we were in, in June. Typically, that type of divergence uh, occurs at a reversal point. And all this the final point occurring with the emergence of bullish seasonal. So it's, this is textbook criteria, Brian. Uh, this is why we see an opportunity for the long-term investor. Uh, the missing piece, of course, can, is, is interest rates, which has really driven this sell-off. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see that 10-year yield lower. So there is that lingering concern for, from a near-term basis. But for the long-term investor, we see this as opportunity. Where's the confirmation signs? What do we need to see? Well, let's start with the 10-year yield. Uh, watching 3.5%. That was the June peak. So if you fall below the June peak, that's an indication of a failed breakout and exhaustion there in the rate market as well. Uh, and on the upside for the S&P, we can consider this counter trend while you're below the 200-day, but you start to move above that 200-day average, and a lot of long-term trend signals are going to flip positive, and all of a sudden you have the emergence of a new bull market. What would be a sign of failure? And I mean, aside from stocks going back down, of course. Right. So, you know, listen, uh, there's always the tail risk scenario. And, and for perhaps you want to if, if you're worried about you can't be in and out, uh, you want to wait for the lagging confirmation, the base and turn. Uh, but even just from a trading basis, keep an eye on the June low. It's around thirty six, thirty seven. We're back above there today. We fell below it Friday. As long as we're above it, you have the setup for a failed breakdown yeah. below the June low. But what you're going to be looking for, Brian, really, is it's not just the, the level on the downside, but if we start to see selling intensity pick back up and a surge in new lows again, that would have to restart the whole bottoming process. All right. It's Monday. Let's, let's be in a good mood. Leave us with some opportunity here. Chipotle, CMG, what's on the chart that makes this look attractive to you? 
Yeah, well, so the case for us is that the breadth of stocks at the least have lightly uh, bottomed here, if not the stock market. We are seeing improvements in breadth. A lot of consumer names like Chipotle, names that broke out during that summer rally that reversed their decline. And while the market was sliding in the third quarter, it developed more as a consolidation within a reversal for a name like Chipotle, which is back to the 200-day average. It's a name also covered at the firm with an outperform rating. Our analyst, Brian Bittner, likes it as a top idea. Uh, we call it an opco trifecta. It sets up well. We think that reversal is intact. And this is a, a great name to play what we think is a market recovery. Ari Wald, always a pleasure to have you on watching this market. Hope you're right. A lot of people out there hoping you are right. Ari, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Take All care. right, up next, why the U.K.'s big U-turn on fiscal policy is helping stocks there and here. And could it be one of the shortest tenures ever for a U.K. prime minister? Why Liz Truss may already be on her way out. We're live in London next. All right, welcome back. Maybe call this the flip-flop heard around the world, or at least around the U.K. A new finance minister scrapping all the planned changes to tax and fiscal policy from Prime Minister Liz Truss. And now there are already calls for trust to step down, even though she's only been in office for six weeks. Arabili Goumede is in live in London with the latest. And Arabili, good to see you. I mean, this, this could be one of maybe the shortest tenures in the history of prime ministers. Yeah, it certainly could be. Of course, she is indeed ousted and uh, does have to leave 10 Downing Street. It certainly would be one of the shortest tenures we've uh, certainly seen on record. We do have a word then from our sister channel, uh, Sky News, that indeed around four Tory members of Parliament have actually put in official letters uh, for uh, her departure. So those are motions of no confidence against her. But whether those will succeed is fully dependent on quite a few, uh, uh, you know, sort of eventualities, the technical Technically, uh, Liz Truss, as a uh, prime minister, is said to still be in uh, office for at least a year. But the committee that is uh, said to rule on that could turn that rule around and certainly change things. Uh, But indeed, a whole lot of pressure being uh, held firm with regards to whether she will stay at 10 Downing Street or whether she will be removed. And quite interesting enough that she wasn't actually in Parliament today here at the House of Commons, where she was expected to answer a few questions then from members of parliament and instead she was um, detained for what seemed to be an emergency meeting and a matter of importance uh, with the leader of the house of commons uh, then penny mordant indeed actually saying that there was a clear and decisive reason a concise reason as to why she wasn't here of course a whole lot of speculation could be rife with regards to that but one can certainly say that we haven't heard word from the prime minister since friday when she delivered her last announcement. But we have heard from Jeremy Hunt, the finance minister, every day since Friday. So it certainly is telling that perhaps he has now become the mouthpiece for this government. Yeah, she's kind of, she's kind of dropped off the, uh, the media map. We'll see if she pops back up. Arabili Gumede, good to have you on. An important story here as well. Arabili, thank you. All right, up next, could New York and Boston actually run out of diesel fuel this winter? They could. We'll tell you why next. All 
Uh, welcome back. There certainly are a lot of energy-related headlines today, from BP buying a renewables company to Continental Resources founder Harold Hamm trying to take his company private. But there's also something happening that's not getting much attention, which is the real possibility of some diesel fuel shortages in the Northeast this winter. That would be a big deal. Joining us now is Tom Closer. He is co-founder of Oil Price Information Services. Tom, I was following some of your research last week, and we talked so much about Europe and their problems. Feels like the Northeast, New England in particular, is kind of on the razor's edge here. We are on the razor's edge, and the reality is we've been moving closer to that in the last few years. A lot of the big storage terminals, places that would have a million barrels of diesel or heating oil, uh, have been shut down or they've been repurposed to sort of, uh, you know, general warehouses and so forth. So we have a just-in-time inventory situation. And with Europe, really, the, the big uh, kind of uh, question about what's going to happen between now and December 5th, uh, we're not sure if we're going to have enough. Uh, and I would venture to say that we're seeing, you know, just absolutely burlesque refinery margins. If you make diesel right now in the Northeast, you're making like 100 to $105 a barrel on it. So... It's in short supply. It's even in short supply in the Midwest. And God knows what $5 diesel costs for farmers are going to translate yeah. to in uh, ag, ag products. And you got a Mississippi River that is very low in the northern part of the river, which, by the way, is a heavy traffic area for diesel fuel barges. We've seen them coming. If that gets cut off as well, it could be an artificial shutdown. What, what would happen, Tom, if we get this? I mean, how long? If it's just a day or a couple of days, would it be that big of a deal? I think it would be a big deal. I think it'll be a big deal for the heating oil business. People forget that there's a lot of folks in the Northeast that still use heating oil as opposed to natural gas or propane. And if you get a cluster of degree days, somewhere between, let's say, uh, Thanksgiving and Valentine's Day, you can have a problem under normal circumstances. But you look at some of these markets, New England and the middle Atlantic, they're running on uh, inventories not seen in the last 40 years. And 40 years ago was the last time we saw global inventories this low. And we've added 3.6 million or billion people in that time. So it's, it's pretty daunting. Uh, my suggestion is we may get through this next month. Uh, and then we get some refineries in the Northeast returning along with some other places. But winter is going to be very, very scary. It will be scary. And, there, and there's a lot of talk about possible export restrictions, Tom, in the United States. It's kind of going around. Some very prominent members of Congress have talked about limiting our ability to export either refined product and or crude oil around the world. And it's, it sounds easy, right? Oh, that's a great idea. We need it here. You know, forget about it. Well, the problem is that refining something in Houston doesn't mean you can get it to New York. It may be a lot easier to send it from Houston to Rotterdam, then to New York because of 100-year-old archaic shipping regulations. Yeah, and I think the Jones Act is is as close to sort of uh, something that's unassailable for politicians as could be. That's the act that allows you to ship in non-American tankers from ports to port. Uh, again, I, I think it's a problem. We may get a mild winter, and that may solve our, our problems, but we're going to be dealing with this from the winters now on. This is not an energy transition that ends its crisis in the winter of 2022 or 23. 
it's going to prevail for a, a number of years. And on the export ban, you know, the refiners will say, again, that it, it will hurt their overall production because they export some cats and dogs in terms of oil products yeah. that we don't use here. And that helps them maintain high runs. Yeah, you're bringing up such an important point. It's getting through this winter is important, but it's next winter that everybody I talk to is really worried about. Tom, thanks for yeah. coming on. Really appreciate well, it. Tom, close up. Thanks, Thank Brian. All right, still ahead. China's leader Xi Jinping all but guaranteed to be nominated, doing air quotes, for a third term during this week's Chinese Communist Party Congress. And U.S. intelligence now issuing a dire warning about the potential impact on American business. Eamon Jabbers has that next. There's always one more thing before we go, and that is a rare warning from U.S. intelligence about China's growing threat to American business, both here and abroad. Eamon Javers has more. Eamon. Yeah, Brian, that's right. With the news out of Beijing over the weekend about Xi Jinping taking a new term, leading intelligence officials and business analysts are really focused on the threat now of the possibility of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan and what that would mean for the U.S. economy and for the world. I spoke to Michael Orlando. He's the top counterintelligence official in the U.S. Office of the Director of National Intelligence. He gave us a rare warning from the U.S. intelligence community directly to corporate America. I think the one industry that causes me concern and others is semiconductors, given uh, how much is produced there and, and how hard it is to reshore that, the amount of money it takes and the time it takes. And so that's why I think it's important we start thinking about those contingency plans now, because it would be tough for both economies. So given that, I asked him if companies should start canceling their contracts in Taiwan. Here's what he said. I wouldn't say cancel contracts in Taiwan, but working with our allies to figure out where else we can go in case we'd lose that capacity. Again, it goes back to basic risk management, which is you have to diversify. And if you have too many eggs in one basket, that's probably not good. But cybersecurity and geopolitical expert Dmitry Alperovitch told me he sees a much more dire and immediate impact from any conflict in Taiwan. If there's a war over Taiwan, um, that means the end of all business in China. So American CEOs need to start planning for that possibility. I think it's uh, not a certainty, but the likelihood is very high. So those that are making 10-year plans to be in China may be in for a rude awakening. So, Brian, the bottom line here is the message from intelligence experts is that the time for American companies to be thinking through their China divestment strategies is right now because there's at least the possibility of an event on the horizon that could be a big shock to the economic system, Brian. So don't invest in, the, in China at all. I mean, that's kind of the message I'm hearing. Am I reading that wrong? Yeah, look, I mean, Michael Orlando, uh, who is the top uh, intelligence official on, on counterintelligence for the U.S., his advice to American investors was think very hard about what you're doing in terms of putting money into China, particularly, he said, on quantum computing. He said he doesn't really want to see uh, private equity or venture capital money from the United States going into Chinese quantum computing companies because he said it's against the self-interest of the American companies yeah. who are investing in the first place. Those are the companies that are going to crack your own encryption in a couple of years' time. So don't finance them. He said people yeah. need to be thinking in those terms and thinking that way now. Big story. Eamon Javers, appreciate it. Thank you, my you friend. Yep. All right, folks, we'll see you tomorrow. That does it for us here on The Exchange. I'll see you tonight on Fast Money at 5 p.m., but Power Lunch starts right now. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.